And now, here is Walter Bingham. Hello and welcome to this very special program. It's the 28th of the month of Tevet. 5784 and that is my birthday according to the Hebrew calendar. While most of us in Israel are going about our usual business, the war to destroy Hamas and free the hostages is raging ever fiercer and not so many kilometers from our own homes. Daily we are losing precious Jewish souls who were fighting so that Israel can exist free from terrorist attacks. May their families be spared from any more sorrow, and may the wounded have a speedy and full recovery. I'm also thinking of the families who had to leave their homes in the north and will probably not be able to return for some time, as well as those from the south who no longer have a home to go to, because the Hamas terrorists destroyed it on October 7th. And of course, our brothers and sisters who are in captivity by the cruel Hamas. May the IDF's effort bring them home healthy and well. I'm neither a military strategist nor a politician, but having had my share of fighting in a bloody war to defeat the Nazis, I apply my experience when I say that in the war against Hamas, many lives could have been saved by employing a more ruthless way of dealing with those terrorist enemies who themselves do not abide by any military or humanitarian codes or conventions. Therefore, all buildings from where Hamas are known to be operating in contravention of internationally accepted rules of war should be flattened without exception, whether schools, kindergartens or medical centers. It's Hamas who are putting their civilians at risk, and it is they who are committing war crimes. Their modus operandi makes it impossible for us to avoid civilian casualties, and our humanitarian action of announcing the next target square in Gaza will allow the enemy to move elsewhere and take the hostages with them. It is therefore counterproductive and will only prolong the agony. Neither the US, the UK, Canada or France have any right to preach to us about considering civilians. They were all involved in flattening cities in World War II. Have they forgotten Hiroshima and Nagasaki? There were no terrorists in those cities. Oh, and what about Dresden in Germany, where 1,000 bombers dropped 3,000 tons of bombs, including in centuries, in two days, and burnt thousands to death? I also thought I'll just remind the protesting marchers in the world cities of that. All those who are posing as guardians of civilians but are prepared to eliminate 8 million Jews from the river to the sea. Douglas Murray sums it up. Israel is the only country in the world never allowed to win a war. That's why, by the way, you have the situation in the Gaza. You have all the international idiots telling the Israelis they have to withdraw. And then what happens? You give the Palestinians a statelet and they, they give you Hamas and war. 
Uh, anyone who thinks the West Bank is going to be a Palestinian state is now living with the fairies. And it's not because of the Israelis. It's because the Palestinian Authority hasn't wished to create a state for decades. It never did. It's only ever been interested in creating a state from the river to the sea, as they always say. It's never been interested in a two-state solution. Palestinian Authority, under two leaders now, has repeatedly turned down every Israeli offer uh, of, of peace. They were offered 99% of what they wanted just 15 years ago. They turned it down again, as Yasser Arafat did at Oslo. They don't want a two-state solution. They want a one-state solution, and that's a Jewish-cleared Palestinian state. And this is how former Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir put it. When were Palestinians born? What was all this area before the First World War? When Britain got the mandate over Palestine, what was Palestine then? Palestine was then the area between the Mediterranean and the Iraqian border. You say there's no such thing East as East and West Bank, no. East and West Bank was Palestine. I'm a Palestinian. From 21 until 48, I carried a Palestinian passport. There was no such thing in this area as Jews and Arabs and Palestinians. There were Jews and Arabs. What difference is there between Arabs who were on this side of the Jordan and the other side of the Jordan? Arabs in the East Bank and the uh, West of the border of the West Bank? Now the reason why this show is special. First, I'm very pleased to be able to host the Walter Bingham file into another year. But today it is also just three days after the secular date on which I have reached a century and by the grace of God am entering my 101st year of life. Usually in this show I bring you the stories that shaped the Jewish world. But today I've decided to let you have a brief glimpse into the most important events that shaped my first 100 years. Life is full of surprises. Some are pleasant and even welcome. Others we could well do without. But all of them shape our future. I've certainly had my share of them and thank God that I'm still very much agile of mind and body. Before I reflect on those long hundred years, I want to share with you a short poem that I wrote based on a longer one in German. Thankfully, only a small part of that applies to me. To make it to a century requires patience and much energy. If one likes it or does not, it's best to trust the hand of God. One must swallow many pills to reduce the fast-approaching usual ills. It's best suppressing inner rage and quietly accept what comes with age. Like dealing with a stiffer knee long before this jubilee. The brain substance is also shrinking and that affects the logic thinking. That's why we write it on a chit and then forget where it is hid. At first it's hardly noticeable, but soon becomes inevitable. Even if we would complain, it would be totally in vain. Regrettably, it's all downhill. There is no cure against God's will. During my very early years of life, 
The then German government, known as the Weimar Republic, was struggling to recover from the heavy burden laid upon it by the peace treaty after they lost World War I. It's important to know that Germany always harbored a latent form of anti-Semitism, so that its defeat in 1918 and the subsequent superinflation, being a money matter, was blamed on Jewish financiers. The Weimar Republic was toppled and brought Hitler to power on January the 30th, 1933. He posed as the saviour of Germany from another Jewish plot that would bring about the demise of German cultural superiority and create Jewish world domination. My first years of school before Hitler were uneventful, but after 1933, a Jew going to school became a harrowing experience. I had to endure taunts and physical attacks. Complaints didn't bring any reactions from teachers who totally ignored me. The boy who sat next to me copied my work, as one does, and being a pure Aryan, he received good grades, where mine were marked down. And when I raised my hand to answer a teacher's question, I was no longer called. Not that it would have been necessarily right, but the teacher could not take the chance that the Jew knew anything. Eventually, I had to sit at the back of the classroom, and you can imagine what sign that gave to the class. Soon, all Jewish students, as well as all Jewish academic staff throughout Germany, were expelled. For a short while, a temporary Jewish school was established in my city, and during that time, my marks rose considerably. That ended my mandatory eight years. My parents heard of a year of further education in the city of Mannheim, 60 kilometers north of where I lived, and sent me there, where I was accommodated in the kosher orphanage. Every day I walked to the schoolroom in the building of the large synagogue. The school year began after Easter, and I enjoyed the experience, which only lasted seven months. During my stay there, on October 28th, that's 1938, I learned that lots of Jews had been arrested. I was afraid and wanted to go home. Stay where you are, said my mother on the telephone. They've just taken your father away. I never saw him again. He was forcefully deported to Poland and in Mannheim, that's where I lived, they didn't arrest boys because it was up to the local Nazi chief and so I was spared. For four nights, those Jews were kept in no man's land while the Germans and Poles argued about their fate. Conditions were grim, and 17-year-old Herschel Grinspan, who lived illegally in Paris, heard about his parents' deportation and about their terrible ordeal. So, on November 7th, he went to the German embassy in Paris to protest, and when confronted by the third secretary, Ernst vom Rath, he drew his pistol and shot him. Sometime prior to this, the Nazis had already sent detailed instructions to all their officers in Germany and the Nazi-occupied territories how to carry out an anti-Jewish pogrom. They were told to wait until they get orders. 
the Nazi diplomat Ernst von Rath died of his wounds on the morning of November the 9th, and that was the trigger for the order to proceed. That same night we experienced Kristallnacht, erroneously referred to as the night of the broken glass. That was the beginning of the Holocaust when 1,400 synagogues throughout Germany, Austria and the Sudetenland, that's a part of western Czechoslovakia, were burned down, 91 Jews were killed, 30,000 Jewish men were sent to concentration camps and countless Jewish homes and businesses were destroyed and damaged. As usual on that morning, I walked to school. Even on the way, I felt a strange atmosphere. There were many more people in the streets, and as I approached the synagogue, I realized why. Masses of people were staring at the building that was still quite smoldering, and the fire service was there, but they did nothing to douse the fire, but protected neighboring properties from being damaged. It then became clear to me what was happening. Having gathered my thoughts, I returned to my accommodation, telephoned my mother and said, I am coming home. I remember clearly that I took the 322 diesel train and on arrival found that in Karlsruhe, my town of birth, too, the story was the same. To earn some money, I used my skills of repairing electrical appliances like adapting irons and other items from 220 volts to 110 for those who were fortunate enough to be able to emigrate to the US. I also helped to clean up damage to the Jewish hotel. Many Jews who lost their businesses or having been dismissed from their employment were trying to emigrate to the US or the UK. However, that required sponsorship or proof of financial independence, making it almost impossible and it also applied to my own family. The Jewish establishments in those countries did not pressure their governments sufficiently to accept Jewish refugees because they feared that, listen to that, too many Jews cause anti-Semitism. So, my mother and I had no opportunity to leave Germany. It's interesting how times and attitudes in Europe have changed so that even illegal immigrants are being welcomed and cared for. Following Kristallnacht, there was an appeal by European Jewish communities to the British Jewish philanthropic organizations to save Jewish children from Nazi Europe. It was miraculously approved very quickly after they succeeded in pressuring the government to act and visas for 10,000 children were issued. That became known as the Kindertransport. Throughout Germany in the Nazi-occupied areas, children, some as young as 18 months up to the age of 17, were selected by some obscure quota system. In Karlsruhe, my name was on the list, and on July 25th, 1939, at age 15 and a half, I left the city of my birth. It was a traumatic experience when my mother took me to the railway station, not knowing when we would meet again because everyone knew that war was imminent. Most children never saw their parents again. They became the victims 
of the Holocaust. That's why one dark cloud hangs over this humanitarian enterprise. It was a cruel stipulation that children had to be unaccompanied without their parents. Unfortunately, my mother had to remain behind. As I was older, I was able to find a place by the train window in order to wave as the train pulled out, taking us to safety. I often think of the parents' emotions when they returned home just having sent their children into the unknown and remembering the faces of their small toddlers as they cuddled their dolls and teddy bears, crying and thinking that they were being abandoned by their parents after they placed them into the arms of strangers and then left the train. For the little ones, the trauma could only be compared to being abducted. Our parents were heroes. While heavily affected by this traumatic event, for me the trauma was initially mixed with some sense of adventure, of going on a journey on an international train through foreign countries, but the reality quickly set in as the train pulled out and I too felt alone. The kinder transport continued until the outbreak of war on September 1st, and by that time an estimated 7,500 children had been saved. Had the British government also included the parents and even some siblings, up to a maximum of 20,000 Jews could have been saved. Now let us compare that with a similar number of illegals arriving in the UK every week. God works in mysterious ways. Every kinder transport group arrived in England at the ferry port of Harwich. From there, we went by train to Liverpool Street Station in London. It was on the platform where all the arrivals were divided according to their prearranged destination. Some went to hostels, others to foster parents, the lucky ones had family. Mine was a farm in southern England. After one month, my group was taken to Grich Castle in Abergelly, North Wales, a great one-listed building from the early 19th century, beautifully situated on a hill at the shores of the Irish Sea. The halls were oak-panelled and the palatial staircase was made of marble. Unfortunately, for many years, that place had been neglected totally. There were no facilities. The sanitation was extremely poor and the electricity cables had rotted. So paraffin lamps were our illumination. Our community was run on the lines of a Zionist religious kibbutz. Some went to work on local farms, others had to service the paraffin lamps or generally keep the place running. My task varied from sewing wood for our many fireplaces or making skeleton keys for the locked outhouses to working in a local newspaper offices melting lead for the linotype machines. Grich Castle was my home until I was moved to another very new Hachshara center nearby in St. Asaph. Sometime towards the end of 1942, I was confident enough to leave for London in search of a new life. 
At the end of 1943, after the Royal Air Force turned me down for a pilot's license, even then my eyesight was not 20-20, I joined the British Army instead. In wartime, many airmen die young, and as I lived to be reunited with my mother after the war, Hashem, I believe that divine providence played its part. An accepted principle among soldiers was to never volunteer. I ignored that and instead of driving an amphibious vehicle in fear of being shot up by enemy fighters while travelling at seven knots in the water, I opted to become an ambulance driver. There were no German Air Force attacking the landings on the beaches and just after D-Day in June 1944, my landing craft arrived some distance from the shore and I drove my ambulance through the water onto a Normandy beach. For almost a year, I evacuated the wounded under heavy fire during France, Belgium and Holland. In answer to my application to be transferred to a job where my language knowledge of German would be useful, was long delayed, but finally approved just before the horrendous battle over the River Rhine at that bridge in Arnhem in September 1944, known as A Bridge Too Far. Once again, God spared my life. That ended the first and most dangerous part of my military service, which had an indelible effect on my life and maturity. The contrast from the battlefield to counterintelligence training at a secret office at London's Oxford Circus was stark but welcome. To soak in a bathtub after much of the year in a dugout was heaven. It was May the 8th, 1945, Victory in Europe Day, when, after having spent time at HQ Intelligence Corps Brussels, I left for Hamburg to begin the work for which I had been trained to evaluate Nazi documents and correspondence and to ascertain who among the suspects we interrogated fell into the arrest categories of the various Nazi organizations. My office was in the headquarter building of the Nazi Party of Greater Hamburg, the seat of the Gauleiter, which we had occupied. He was the regional head of the party bureaucracy and minister of shipping. I had not long settled in when in mid-June I was asked to speak with a high-profile prisoner captured in the city. He turned out to be Joachim von Ribbentrop, the Nazi foreign minister. We sat about one metre apart in my office, just he and I. This ardent Nazi, who was in overall charge of everything that had happened in Nazi-occupied Europe, looked me in the eye and denied every knowledge of the Holocaust. When I challenged him, he claimed to have read it in the newspaper. Unbelievable. His arrogance and delusions of grandeur had no bounds. Faced with my camera, he still believed that it was for publicity. He rose and requested to have a shave first. That's when I raised my voice and told him to sit down. Some more questioning followed before I had this prisoner removed. At the Nuremberg war crimes trials, he was found guilty of conspiracy, crimes against peace, 
war crimes and crimes against humanity and sentenced to death. He was the first to be hanged at 1.30 a.m. on the 16th of October 1946. The date of my discharge from the army was the 31st of December 1947. I declined the opportunity to stay on. Here are your civilian clothes and the railway ticket to your chosen destination were the last words I heard before I was totally alone as I stepped into the street. It was hard to adjust to civilian life. After all, for four years the army cared for my every need. Unlike today, there was no aftercare. Post-traumatic stress disorder was not recognized at that time in military veterans. I just had to persevere. Much later, and on my own initiative, still while trying to make a living, I enrolled in the university and graduated with an upper second degree in politics and philosophy. I followed that with postgraduate study of political philosophy at London University's Birkbeck College. Once again, God guided me in the right direction. I married my wonderful wife, my rock, for 40 years until her untimely death in 1990. But her spirit lives on in our daughter, who also lives in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, and who is extremely caring. Without her help, I could no longer continue in my chosen profession. Having made Aliyah at age 80, it is difficult to master the modern Hebrew language. However, I settled in Jerusalem, where English sufficed, and my knowledge of Yiddish is a good standby. My studies in London enabled me to enter a career in print and radio journalism, which became my passion for more than the last 55 years. Today, at 100, I am proud to be the oldest working journalist and oldest active radio show host in the world, for which I hold two Guinness World Records. I still broadcast on two Israeli stations and write regularly for the prestigious magazine Jerusalem Report. In London, for some years as a sideline and to earn some money, I took up acting, worked as an advertising model and as Santa Claus in London's largest department stores, Harrods and Selfridges. As I always do things, from which many others of a similar age shy away, my hobby, until my eyesight deteriorated five years ago, was piloting airplanes. And in 1971, I flew a fully instrumented plane solo from London to Israel and back. Some five years ago, I had to change to the relatively benign sport of skydiving. And God willing, we'll do the next skydive as soon as the war ends and flying resumes. Besides all that, I still travel to Europe to speak to schools, and at the end of January, now, I am scheduled to be taken to England for a second time within the past three months for events organized by the renowned March of the Living organization. A friend asked me, when will you retire? I had to look up the meaning in the dictionary and then replied, you will have to put up with me for many more years 
because I am looking forward to being a part of Israel's bright future in 2024 and beyond. And so I close this program. Until we meet again, this is Walter Bingham wishing you a good week. And please go and visit your elderly neighbor. Some may be very lonely. Goodbye.